Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with your uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, started off with the usual links I liked. Um, I'll just pick a couple. One, uh, a really nice piece by Nanny Janssen Reventlow on how not to communicate when inviting a diverse, in inverted commas, person to come speak at your event or join your club. Really useful if you're organising events, you want to ensure that it's not all white or all male or whatever. How you do that actually really matters, and uh, I think it's a really good piece. Um, and the second completely different uh, topic, how much does it cost to be a politician in Uganda? Some really interesting research uh, where people have gone and interviewed politicians and worked out that to become an MP in Uganda costs you about $130,000. But it actually, women find it costs $145,000. So it's more expensive if you're a woman wanting to become an MP, it appears. Um, but once you become an MP, you've just got to keep spending. So the, the amount they spend on all the things that are expected of MPs exceeds their salary. So if that is the system, it's hardly any surprise if there's quite a lot of corruption because how else are MPs supposed to recoup their expenses and their expenditure. So nice that someone actually went and asked them. I think that's a, it's a good link. The second um, post was by Larissa Pelham, who is Oxfam's social protection advisor. And she has sat through some monster four-day Zoom conference, which sounds horrendous. Um, but it was a big sort of global get-together on this issue of social protection and the lessons of COVID. And Larissa identified four takeaways uh, and some gaps. The takeaways were really interesting, I thought. Um, so firstly, um, that uh, the best way to respond to these sudden shocks is actually not necessarily through the international humanitarian system, which is just too slow. It's faster, more effective and more, more accountable and democratic if governments can scale up their state welfare, uh, social welfare systems, things like cash transfers, food, fee waivers, subsidies and that kind of thing. So really what you want is a, a basic national social protection system in place, which you can then rapidly scale up rather than this very slow process of the UN agreeing money and passing the hat round to donors and all the rest of it, by which time a lot of, you know, uh, you're coming in much too late to respond. Second sort of key lesson, cash. Cash meets multiple needs, especially digital cash in a time of COVID because it doesn't involve people to people contact. Uh, and it's just more respectful. I think it lets people make their own choices. Um, so, you know, once once again, uh, the, the the value of just giving people cash rather than stuff is driven home. Um, but we can't just leave social protection to governments um, and NGOs and especially national NGOs and civil society organisations will be needed to keep governments honest, but also to either point out that people are being left behind or to fight for those left behind people to be included. So you're looking at the young, the old, migrants have had a particularly bad time in many countries uh, in the middle of COVID, uh, oppressed minorities. So if you're going to keep social protection universal, then you need those outside forces pushing governments to do so. And finally, the case for a global social protection fund is growing. But she stresses only as a stepping stone to national systems funded by national taxes. Um, uh, and then her final sort of observation, which I thought was very nice. Achieving social protection for all is a delicate waltz between three groups of dancers. 
those building big, blunt, effective delivery systems embedded in the legal and tax financial frameworks, the political classes and trade unions responsive to the public or members' votes, and those receiving the system who experience it during shocks and experience it dovetailing with their own community's systems. So Larissa stresses that there's many forms of informal social protection, people just looking after each other, which don't go through the state at all. And then her lesson for Oxfam was as an NGO in this area, Oxfam must get better at understanding these first two groups, so states and the sort of political classes and unions, and creating space for that third group of the people on the receiving end. So Oxfam's sort of doing a convening and brokering role between those different players. Very nice, I thought. Third is a report back on a webinar we had last week. Um, I'm involved uh, with some colleagues at Oxfam and some colleagues at LSE on this uh, program called Emergent Agency in a Time of COVID, where we're trying to look at what's bubbling up uh, in terms of grassroots organisation, uh, in terms of what they do, in terms of who is doing it, in terms of its impacts. Um, and we had a sort of kickoff webinar last week, which was great fun. Three speakers, Catherine Marshall talking on faith organisations, Lawrence Cox talking on social movements and Yogesh Gore talking on livelihoods. And uh, I just had some sort of you know, bits on the blog, some things which struck me. So Catherine Marshall driving home just how important faith is to a bunch of things that are moving up the aid and development radar, things like trust, agency, you know, what makes people take action to improve their lives, social norms, well-being, things like funerals, rituals, the ability to worship. You know, should spiritual support be seen as an essential service? I've never come across it discussed as such in an Oxfam document, but why not? You know, being able to worship and, and support each other spiritually is incredibly important this, you know, to people I've met all over the world in different poor communities. And a very practical example of why this matters, without religious engagement, the vaccine process will not succeed. You've got to build trust around vaccine. You've got to get people involved around the vaccine. Engaging religious communities in doing that would make it a whole lot easier. Lawrence Cox was very nice. He gently reminded us of the danger of seeing what we want to see. So you've got all these researchers out there researching and, and, and clicking on links and seeing what's been written. But are we seeing what we want, what we think is already there. So he said, we circulate stories we like or that we find mean, meaningful, but are they accurate? How do we keep our eyes open rather than see everything as a mirror of our prior opinions about how change happens, what matters in poor communities and so on? So Lawrence is kind of like this very nice, gentle guru who keeps you honest about what you're doing and gently mentions that you might be making some big mistakes. So I think he's, he's very great to work with. Yogesh wrote a blog for me back in April on this amazing grassroots response in India to the pandemic. At that point, he wrote 24 states of India have 65,000 rural women in 15,000 self-help groups who had already, by April the 12th, produced over 20 million masks. So they've gone, they flipped into PPE production, both as a way of making a living and because that's what's needed. That number has now risen to 230 million masks. And the, the quality is really good. They're, they're downloading stuff off YouTube in terms of getting the right quality for, um, you know, for effective protection and working to that spec. It's, it's really interesting. So my overall conclusion from the webinar, we're onto something. There is interest in um, uh, emergent agency and it's bubbling up in a lot of different spheres in a lot of different ways. So I think we are doing something there. 
But another slightly more subtle conclusion was that nothing about the webinar really surprised me. And it may be that rather than discovering some major new story, we, by which I mean those of us in formal aid organisations, could, could end up in some kind of much needed refresh, broadening our understanding of how change happens at the grassroots to recognise that the world has always been much more diverse and complex than the standard narratives allow. So I think we may have become a bit impoverished in our understanding of the world. We see everything through a very a set repertoire of organisations and uh, processes of organisation and lobbying and advocacy and campaigns. What this research is reminding us is that the world is much deeper and more complex than that. And that sounds great. Fourth was just a straightforward, oh my God, this book is fantastic. Buy it for your friends for Christmas. The book in question is by Helen Lewis, uh, a British writer, and it's a hi uh, Difficult Women is the main title, the subtitle, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And it's just wonderful. She writes like a dream. Um, her thesis is fascinating, and I think it's a great present for anybody um, uh, in your network who, uh, 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 who likes good political writing. Here's a sample. Women's history should not be a shallow hunt for heroines. Too often I see feminists castigating each other for admiring the Pankhursts, autocrats, Andrea Dworkin, too aggressive, Jane Austen, too middle class, Margaret Atwood, worried about due process in sexual harassment accusations, and Jermaine Greer, where do I start? <clears throat> I recently read a piece about how I, this is um, Helen Lewis, how I was problematic for having expressed sympathy for the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. My crime was to say that his confirmation hearings had been turned into a media circus, and even those accused of sexual assault deserved better. The criticism reflects a desperate desire to pretend that thorny issues are actually straightforward. No more flawed humans struggling inside vast, complicated systems. There are good guys and bad guys, and it's easy to tell which is which. This approach is pathetic and childish, and it should be resisted. I want to restore the complexity to feminist pioneers. Their legacies might be contested, they might have made terrible strategic choices, and they might have not lived up to the ideals they preached, but they mattered. Their difficulty is part of the story. Now, she fully admits that this is basically a book about UK and US feminists, so it's not global. It, it looks pretty white, although not entirely. But she looks at, she takes a chapter on each issue and then looks at a, a difficult pioneer in each. So divorce, um, the vote, sex, Mary Stopes, who's been in the news recently for her unfortunate um, um, interest in eugenics. Um, play, fantastic pioneer footballer called Lily Parr. Work, safety, Erin Pitsy, who went very odd after starting the women's refuge movement in, in, in Britain. Love education, time, abortion, and it's just a, yeah, and for each of those, she tells the story through biographies, sort of pen portraits of these difficult women, and I just think it's a great way to tell feminist history, and it makes its own point. Her parting thought, and I love this in terms of a lot of the stuff I read, we have to resist the modern impulse to pick one of two settings, airbrush or discard. History is always more interesting when it is difficult. We can't tidy away all the loose ends and the uncomfortable truths without draining the story of its power. Everything is problematic. The battles are difficult and we must be difficult too. 
And I think Helen Lewis, judging by a lot of her writing, is probably also counts as a difficult woman and a very, very effective one at that. Last piece of the week. Um, what have we learned about the care economy from seven years work in 25 countries? So Oxfam has been working in these 25 countries since 2013 on unpaid care and domestic work. So this is classically, you know, women doing the cleaning, uh, women doing the childcare, not being paid, not being recognised. And it's an issue which has always been on the feminist agenda, but I think it's come up a lot more in the last few years. And I like to think that's in part due to the work of my Oxfam colleagues who've been slogging away at this. It's got a really good summary of the history of the idea of the, of the concept and how the concept has become more and more mainstream. You know, you get picked up and put into declarations, into resolutions, into the SDGs, and slowly I think becomes part of the um, architecture and furniture of discussion of aid and development. And that's what's happened on unpaid care and domestic work, uh, thanks to some very, very good advocacy, I have to say, um, and research. Some of the findings from the seven years of work that you can't just do kit, you can't, you know, distribute stoves which save time on cooking. You have to also work on social norms. So without continuous work on social norms, training, awareness raising, uh, increasing men's engagement, public infrastructure and time and labour saving equipment aiming to reduce women's time on unpaid care tasks could in fact lead to women spending more time on, on it. So, you know, you you give women better stoves and they end up cooking three meals a day rather than two, unless something else changes as well in the home in terms of the role of men and boys. Second point, men and boys' involvement is critical. And in our experience, men are often very positive about sharing unpaid care work, particularly if they see others doing it. So a lot of this, some of the really interesting stuff for me in this paper is about norms and about, you know, the way people look around them and decide what is acceptable, what is normal, what is natural and how you shift that over time. So three final findings which jumped out at me. Urban poverty is associated with higher care workloads than rural poverty, which is the opposite of what I would expect, um, yeah, very ignorantly. I would expect as people come into towns, there's more shops, there's more access to uh, technology, you'd expect um, uh, unpaid care to go down compared to the you know, walking miles for water kind of unpaid care. In fact, it goes up. On that norm question, what matters most is what people think other community members believe rather than what they think other community members do. So do other community members disapprove of boys doing cooking and washing or do they not? If they don't, then it's much easier that boys take that up and that mothers and fathers encourage kids to do that kind of thing. One example. Final one, a rather darker one. Norms related to gender-based violence are linked to those that reinforce gendered divisions of care. So basically, if you think doing all the unpaid work is woman's work, you're more likely to think that it's okay to beat women. That's my very crude summary of that, of that finding. That's not a great way to end the week, but it was a really good piece of work and uh, you know, hats off to, the, to, to everyone involved. And on that note, have a great weekend. Uh, I'm just hoping that the weather improves in the UK. It's cold, wet, miserable, but at least the rugby's back on. Okay, bye everybody.